You're listening to Understanding Disordered Eating. I'm your host, Rachel Heinemann, licensed mental health counselor. Each week, we explore the deeper meaning of our relationship with food and our body. I interview experts in the field of eating disorders and psychoanalysis to bring you the answers about why you do the things you do and bring you one step closer to a healthier relationship with food and yourself. All right, let's get started. Hey, hey, episode 56 here with Juliana Hazelwood. Now, just a quick reminder, if you haven't already done so, to sign up for my mailing list in that weekly email goes out on Thursday evening. It is full of tips, thoughts, inspiration, and just different ways that you can look at the world because the ways that you're looking at it right now aren't particularly helpful. So just helping you move the needle ever so slightly to become the person that you want to be to heal your relationship with food, all that good stuff. So that's on Thursday and that's on my mailing list. This week's episode is, like I said, with Juliana Hazelwood. She is the owner of Sense of Self Somatics and basically she's an acupuncturist. So she's either practices acupuncture or does coaching. So she does a lot of somatic therapies. She specializes in eating disorders, but works with a whole host of other mental health challenges like anxiety, depression, trauma. She uses a lot of somatic experience, a lot of internal family systems. That's IFS. We'll talk about that a smidge today in narrative medicine. Juliana is the perfect blend of art and science. And I'm not really sure how to describe that in words. She'll do a lot better of an explanation, even just by her being her. But if you were interested in a little bit more of the cross paths between art and medicine, art, and science. She is the creator of Bedside Manor Universe. So it's this really cool place for providers, for patients to just discuss and learn more about the art of medicine and just different parts of the arts and how it relates to science. She has a podcast there. It's really, really cool. What we are talking about today is so, so important. Because very often, and especially if we're just listening to podcasts or even if we're going to therapy and scrolling online, learning information, where we're trying to learn all this new info, we're trying to incorporate all of this information that we're getting to change our lives, but nothing is actually changing. And that's when your awareness, your understanding, your logic really can only take you so far. I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with it. I think there's so much in the understanding and the gathering knowledge in the learning. Obviously, I'm going to be the first person to preach that. But if we keep it in our brains and we don't actually move that into our body and incorporate that into our actual life, then what's the point? I mean, it just just stays, just stays in our head. So today's conversation is when understanding and logic can really only take you so far. And then what the heck do I do now? And Juliana is going to walk us through it. So let's just jump right in. Well, thank you, Juliana, for joining me today. I am so excited to do this and hear a lot more about your work because I know about it peripherally, but uh, taking a deep dive, I'm so excited to do this. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So maybe just to start, can you share a bit about who you are and the work that you do and all that jazz? Yeah. So my name is Juliana. I'm a licensed acupuncturist. I also am a somatic experiencing trainee. 
And I specialize with people in recovery from eating disorders and because eating disorders carry with them a whole host of physical and mental issues. Uh, I end up working with people on all of the things that arise when you're both in the disorder and also trying to deal with the side effects of recovering from them. Yeah. So in terms of your day-to-day, not to be like, oh my gosh, day in the life of, but (laughs) is it mostly acupuncture? Is it that you do some other work with people? Like when I say your work, even in quotations, people can't actually see that I'm doing air quotes here, but I'm assuming it's not just acupuncture. It's not just acupuncture. Actually, acupuncture is a very small, it's very low on my hierarchy of usable tools that I use to help people. It can be very powerful because it's working with the physical body. And so people who want that hands-on and like need that physical input into their system, it's really helpful. But I do a lot of work online virtually and a lot of coaching work that is more heavy on the somatic experiencing that I do and exposure therapy type of things. I use the IFS framework, the internal family systems framework. So it really depends on where people are struggling in their experience in their body, what tools I end up pulling from. But yeah, acupuncture, even though it can be very powerful, is not necessarily like the peak of the triangle of what I use. Yeah. So there's the acupuncture piece and then there's the coaching piece. And then you bring them all together, depending on what a specific person needs, or I guess, well, one thing is location. Cause if they don't live very exactly. locally to your office, then, you know, you can't do acupuncture virtually yeah. or I don't think you can. <laughs> no, it's not advisable. I'm not going to like <laughs> nail needles to someone and be like, put it there. <laughs> oh my God. So I guess we can sort of like delve into the work that you do. We can sort of pick it apart because your work is super, super niche. I mean, like yes, yes. an acupuncturist who specializes in eating disorders, does somatic experience and IFS. I mean, like you're basically a unicorn. Yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about how that came to be and like how you've gathered information to understand eating disorders. And of course, a lot of the side effects of what happens we can talk about what those specifically are, but even just generally, what is your understanding of the development, the maintenance of an eating disorder, almost the the foundation of it? Yeah. So currently I look at eating disorders from what we call a biopsychosocial context. So there's something biologically that's going on that's making disordered behaviors and thoughts and patterns feel adaptive and self-protective. There's something socially that encourages or allows those behaviors to happen. And then there's something psychological too, that's sort of off. So it's kind of a perfect storm of things that make someone slip into slip in and out of disordered behavior. I came to this. I think it's important to say, I came to this understanding because I suffered from anorexia when I was very, very young. I had OCD as a child and that just sort of you know, it's a very, very common experience that just sort of transitioned into restricting my eating. And I developed a very, very life-threatening case of anorexia. And throughout my recovery, you know, I saw therapists, I saw dietitians and nutritionists, like I was getting kind of sporadic treatment until I got proper treatment. But what was really striking throughout that experience, and I'm glad that I went through it because it really put me in the shoes of people who know that they need help. They know that they're struggling. Maybe they've done like a lot of, you know, quote unquote work on themselves and like understand like 
they've read the intuitive eating books They like intellectually, they understand their problems and their triggers and whatever, but they still feel off or they still slip into like very like instinctive disordered behaviors. And there's just something in their body that just doesn't feel right. So maybe they can sort of like white knuckle their recovery and their relationship to food and their body, like mentally, but at a certain point that like those seams start to fray a little bit and there's something like in the body that has to shift. And so during my own recovery, like <laughs> I was like really into alternative medicine and holistic stuff and meditating and blah, blah. Like I would try anything just because, you know, why not? And I felt kind of disregarded by a lot of like mainstream doctors. So, you know, I was doing acupuncture when I was like 15, 16 years old and doing all these like herbal remedies and like all kinds of stuff. And I now hold a very like critical view of the wellness world and alternative medical thinking because I think it can get out of hand really easily and lead to orthorexic behaviors. But what all of that exploration did sort of like the imprint that it left on me was, yeah, when you do something with the body, when you address the physical sensation of being alive and managing all the sensory input on a physical level, not just a psychological or emotional level, like something does change. Like you feel different because your sensory system is sensing things differently. And so when I had my career shift and decided to start working clinically with people, I decided to go to acupuncture school for that reason, because I wanted to understand more about what was going on behind the scenes and under the hood. And what was this like biological context for the behaviors that I knew very well and was also observing with people around me that I knew, you know, from treatment and, and things like that. So that's kind of how I arrived here. And once I got to acupuncture school, I, I was a little bit disappointed to be honest, because the approach <laughs> was a little bit too mystical for my taste, but I'm actually very grateful for that because it led me to do a lot of my own research and find other modalities that were a little bit more scientific in their approach. And what I discovered is that while the research is really limited, there are certain biological and genetic markers for eating disorders that are not always the case there. It's not a hundred percent. There's no eating disorder gene, but there are certain things that genetically are very predictable with, uh, you know, certain genetic profiles that are predictable for certain types of eating disorders. And I found that very interesting because I think it lets people off the hook a little bit to know that like some of it is just biology that we're working with. It's not like your messed up childhood or your like shitty personality or your bad coping skills. It's like literally just like a, a weird glitch in the system that like either, you know, it's like the, the switch gets flipped and those behaviors get embodied and enacted or the switch kind of stays off and you can live a pretty much normal life. So I'm assuming not going the hopeless route, like, oh, well, sucks yeah. for me. I have the bad gene. You're saying yeah. that there's actually something to do about it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So that's where I, I directed my, you know, like my treatment tools and, and strategies and stuff like that, because while we can't like rewire people's genetics very easily, you can work with the nervous system in a pretty powerful way using the body that kind of mitigates some of the like wonkiness that can be happening, like under the hood, basically. Yeah. Well, so maybe just cause I don't know too much about biology. And when we talk about things in the brain, sometimes uh, my eyes glaze over because there are too <laughs> many terms, Yeah. but maybe help us understand a little bit more of, if you can, 
when you talk about the genetic profile and how that connects with the development of an eating disorder, what does that actually mean? What does it actually look like? Yeah. So it's, it's different based on the type of disorder and I'm going to paint like really broad strokes. I can give you resources if you really want to deep dive and like find the actual thing. I also like want to encourage people to like think of things broadly and like use metaphors that apply to their lives instead of like hyper-focusing on like the exact gene, because like, what are you going to do with that information? Like it's only meant Mm -hmm. to sort of enrich your understanding of yourself and like make better decisions about your care. So there's really no need to like stress or obsess too much about the detail. That's a very disordered eating (laughs) characteristic. If only I can perfect my understanding of this biology, (laughs) then I'll be okay. But only as I listen to podcasts at home right? and that's it. <laughs> right. So, so just thinking really broadly for people who have restriction type disorders, it's very common that based on the reward pathways in the brain and the way that we synthesize and clear serotonin, which is a neurotransmitter that basically makes us feel calm and happy when it's in balance, but when it's too high, it actually increases anxiety. It's very common that people with restrictive type behaviors have a, like a glitch in the, in the way that the brain deals with serotonin and they'll have chronically high levels of anxiety. And one of the adaptive ways that the body deals with that is by not eating, by suppressing the the physical urge to eat. So you hear a lot of people say like, you know, after prolonged periods of restriction, they don't feel hunger anymore. Yes. That's partly because the digestive system has shut itself down, you know, because of survival, but that's also because at a certain level in the brain, it actually is rewarding to suppress hunger because it's help mitigating some of that super, super high serotonin. Oh, interesting. So that's just one example. Yeah. It's super interesting. That's just one example. There are some theories that like the ability to ignore hunger cues is actually like a evolutionarily adaptive behavior. And like way, way, way back in the day when we were hunting and gathering in tribes, like there had to be one person (laughs) who could deal with like not finding any barrier or like not, you know, there's a famine and and everyone's like looking for the food. Like they need to be able to travel long distances. So be able to exercise and expend calories while they're in a deficit, not be distracted by like the little berries on the side of the trail, because if they stop, like the whole hunting endeavor also gets halted. They also need to be able to recognize like weight loss or signs of malnutrition in other people. So they can see other people very clearly and the need to get, to get food, but not able to recognize that within themselves, because if they see that in themselves, that triggers a a certain stress response and stops them from being able to like go on the big mountain expedition to get the ox, you know, whatever the, (laughs) I don't know what ancient animals they were, they were hunting, but that's like a, you know, this is still a theory, but that's a way of looking at how, you know, there was a biological need and also a social need and a psychological need for people from the dawn of time to develop the ability to restrict, suppress the desire to eat to have some level of body, like adaptive body dysmorphia and obsess over the pursuit of food. So there are things like that Hmm. that you see in restrictive disorders. I don't know if this is easily explained, but I'm curious in terms of the high levels of serotonin and the response to restrict, how does that connect with the serotonin? 
and it's, help decrease anxiety. Yeah, it's all like hormones basically. So, uh, mm. hormones and neurotransmitters in the brain are often like little levers. So one goes up and the other goes down and it, things get programmed in like relationship to each other. And so there are a lot of hormones. It, it is actually a little complicated, but there are a lot of hormones involved that kind of jump online when they get the signal from the brain that serotonin is too high. So other things need to shut down. And some of those things that shut down are like the hormones that tell us I'm hungry. Oh, very interesting. Um, you were about to start going into probably more, uh, binge purge. Yes. Binge purge and bulimia and things like that. That's also a glitch in the system that rewards the pursuit of food. It's often linked to dopamine. Um, so you see this a lot too, with people with ADHD, where there's a dopamine system, like abnormality, and that's very often a case where people just don't like physiologically, they don't feel satiated or calmed by food and the brain just keeps rewarding eating past a, a level of comfortable fullness or the hormones in their body that make them feel hunger are just like way, 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 uh, ramped up. And so like, they literally do feel that hungry. It's like an insatiable hunger. That's not just emotional. It's not just a response to psychological restriction. It's, it's literally just like a physiological thing that's happening in their body. And so dopamine is kind of the key player there. And serotonin is kind of the key player in restrictive types. Um, but obviously everyone has dopamine and serotonin in their brains and it's never like that clear cut. So it's often an interplay, uh, you know, a delicate balance between the two. And when you factor in other things like general anxiety or stressors in your life, like trauma that can like flip those switches. It can be like stranger things, you know, where it's like, like the lights are just like, Oh my God. Yeah. And it's like, what do I, what do I do? So when you're working with the brain and neurotransmitters and the autonomic nervous system, which is the, the part of our body that either rests and, you know, very simply rests and digests or fights or flights, it's better to look at the, like approach the autonomics from a generalized standpoint and see like, how can I just put this system at rest and put it back in a state where it's neither too stressed out or too shut down so that the need to either restrict, 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 and like shut off sensation is not there, but also the need to like num, 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 or dull, 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 or shut down is also not there. If that makes sense. It does make sense. It also makes me have a lot more questions in terms of, okay, so now what? Um, I'm assuming that's sort of where your work comes in. Yeah. Um, but okay, what do we do with all that? Yeah. An analogy that I think would be helpful here that um, is kind of like the pinnacle of, or an analogy that I use a lot with people uh, because it's helpful and easy to wrap your head around is the window of tolerance. And I, I don't know if you've heard of the window of tolerance before, but we're basically looking at the, your brain and your body as having a certain amount of capacity or tolerance for the world and life and you know activities of daily living. And so if you think about a window, you can either open the window because it's too hot or you need some fresh air or you, you know, want to let some light in, or you can close it down because it's dark, you want to take a nap, you need to rest, you need to recover. And throughout the day, you have the capacity to either open the window or close the window, draw the blinds or open the blinds. 
in a, you know, if you're in a good spot and you're well adapted and you have a good like knowledge of yourself and you're feeling pretty good and pretty even keeled, your window of tolerance, or some people call it the window of presence or your window of capacity is pretty open. And it means that you can do a lot considering all of the factors in, in your environment. If you're feeling really triggered or stressed out or, you know, maxed out, it means you're outside of that window of tolerance. And when you're on the high end of that window, it means you're hyper aroused, you're hyper overstimulated. Your nervous system is taking in too much sensory input. And so in those cases, the trick is to take away some of those uh, stimuli so that the sensory system is not overloaded. Um, and it's, it's kind of like drawing the blinds a little bit so that you can come back into the window where it feels good. If you're really maxed out in the other direction where you're really low and kind of shutting down and closed off and disassociated and that kind of thing, the trick is to, how do you open the window and tolerate it? How do you get out of bed? How do you open the, the blinds and let some light in and not be like, Oh God, Oh no, I don't like that. So either way there's, you know, if you just imagine yourself in like in your bedroom or whatever, and look at your imaginary window and think like, what's my body's physical response? Like if I'm imagining myself in my bedroom and the light is too bright and it's just like a little bit too much, or it's really early, or I don't want to be like awake right now. Like, what do you do with your body? Like you kind of like brace against it. And there's, there's a physical response to that. And the other side of the spectrum when you're really ramped up, it's like, oh, you like slam the the window shut or, you know, like open it and gulp some air in or, you know, do something like that. So what I do is really focusing on like, what is the body's physical reaction to being outside of the window of tolerance? And what can we do when you're, you know, with me in session so that we can analyze that and look at that and, and see what that feels like, but in a way that's more contained and safe and, playful and exploratory so that you're not just like bouncing back and forth between being way outside of your window of tolerance from above or below. What would that actually look like? Like what does a session look like? Yes. And specifically if, if you notice somebody is outside of their window, Oh yeah. what would helping them sort of come back into the window look like from either direction? Yeah. So let's talk about like being on, on the fringe of the window. So the high end of the spectrum is being like hypervigilant, hyper alert, really anxious, like super angry, explosive. That's when like a lot of compulsions come out. And it's, you know, it's like when you're really like edgy and like on, 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 on. That can, physiologically, that can also look like your heart beating faster, you're sweating, you know, like drastic ch- changes in temperature. We call that hyper arousal or like overstimulation, basically. Hypo when things are kind of shutting down to protect the central and autonomic nervous system, that looks like disassociation, like excess sleepiness is often a thing. So a lot of people will be like, I can't meditate because every time I do, I I close my eyes and I fall asleep. It's like, well, you might be tired. Sure. I'll give you that. But also might be your system protecting you from feeling anxiety, feeling discomfort, feeling the uh, discomfort of being outside of your window of tolerance. So sleepiness, Mm -hmm. um, you know, like disengage, feeling spacey or like brain fog, that kind of stuff you know, it it all exists on a gradient and on a spectrum. So the more, you know, where your window of tolerance is on any given day, and it can change based on so many things. If you really did not get a lot of sleep last night, or if you're restricting 
consistently. Like that window is going to be very, very small, but the work that we do is really designed to help people understand what their capacity is from moment to moment so they can make better choices about how they decide to take care of themselves. So if they need to remove a distraction or sensation or stimulus, because they're really like on the high end of that window or approaching the high end of that window, what we do is going to look a lot different than if they're on the low end. So maybe we can do one at a time and share a couple of examples of what that actually would look like. Yeah. Yeah. So let's say someone is, uh, we're doing this IRL. We can do this virtually, but if someone comes in and they want acupuncture or some kind of like hands-on touch, usually what I'll do is I'll have them lie down or be in a position that's comfortable. I often use like a weighted blanket or something just so that the brain knows where the body is in space. Because when the brain doesn't know where it is in space, that automatically is like very disorienting and we don't want that. So when you touch something, when you have sensation going into the central command, the brain, uh, it just knows a little bit more about where it is in the environment. And so that that window is a little bit clearer, like the boundaries of the window are a little bit clearer. So I'll have someone lie down and whether or not, I mean, people come in in all kinds of states, they can be way in or way out of their window of tolerance. They come in when they, when they come in, but regardless, like everyone needs like a a few minutes in the day to just sort of like chill and breathe and like let their body like readapt and like readjust all the knobs in their brain command system to be like, okay, here I am. This is what I'm doing. I'm breathing. Okay. So the beginning of most sessions is very similar and it's a lot of like deep breathing and, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's the same. There's nothing special about like mindfulness. (laughs) 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 And you know, if needles go in, they go in. Sometimes I use needles like very in a very general way because it's a, just a good way to give the the system a little bit of a, a different type of stimulus. And sometimes it'll be very specific because people are dealing with specific pain in certain areas of their body. So where the needles go kind of doesn't matter. It depends on the person. And then from there, it really just depends on what people are working on. I'll use an example just so that it's a little bit more like targeted and then we can go from there. If someone is dealing with, the compulsion to weigh themselves. And they're really struggling to stop weighing themselves. What I'll usually do then is we'll, I'll walk them through a kind of like guided visualization where they're imagining themselves at the moment where they're about to step on the scale. And then we track and scan the body for sensation. And so we're really like slowing down the thought process and really like asking the body to tell us like, what do you go through when you're in that state of being like state of mind, like what is happening like physiologically, because at home, when you're about to step on the scale, like you are not aware of your body. You are only aware of your thoughts. Like that is the only place you are. And we all know where that ends. Like you step on the scale and you're not going to be happy (laughs) no, no matter what the number is. And like, of course, you know this because you're in therapy and you've analyzed this, but like still physically you step on the scale and you feel like shit. Can I swear? Yeah. (laughs) You feel like shit then, you know, for the rest of the day. So we slow that down and we really like talk about it. And, and I, I try and get people to use like very descriptive words about their sensation rather than like analytical words about their sensation, because we all analyze and judge our thoughts anyway, but very rarely do we really break down and describe the physical sensations. And often what happens is you realize like, oh, these sensations don't feel good. (laughs) So so (laughs) with enough practice and enough, uh, like coaching and, and coaxing through 
the imaginative version of this, you realize like, I don't feel good when I do this. So if I'm stepping on the scale to relieve some anxiety or discomfort or achieve some semblance of control or safety, my nervous system now knows that that actually is not going to happen. Like it's actually going to make me feel a different way than what I want. And so we go through exercises like this where they're in the safety of the treatment room. They're not right there at the scale, but they've kind of imagined themselves going through it in a different way so that their embodied experience of it, their physical somatic experience of it informs their like higher level thinking brain in a different way. Because the truth is that the part of our brain that is rational and can communicate and be really intellectual and, and, you know, use words to talk about feelings that they think about that part of the brain doesn't talk to the part of the brain that feels things really emotionally and like has physiological responses to things like the feely, the feely part of the brain doesn't really talk to the thinky part of the brain very often. And so what I do in session with people is really like, uh, make it a tiny bit of a bridge so that the person can then be like, Oh yeah, there's a disconnect here. Like, how can I make this more, more connected? So it's, it's more so focused on bringing the physical experience into making decisions because it's usually completely left out. Yes. And if we allow that to be at least 50% of it, then that's sort of the beginning of the bridge to incorporate a very important piece. Yes behaviors. Yes. And of course it's not the only thing, but it is a really helpful missing piece. And so if we go back to like the biopsychosocial piece of it, it's like we bring the bio part in and then once the body's kind of relaxed and is not like in this state of either like extreme fight or flight or extreme like disassociative, like rest and digest, like if you physically get the body sort of like in a place where it's more willing to cooperate from a neurological perspective, then you can bring in other things like that are more emotional or psychological or address the sort of social context of the eating disorder. And that that's when I work, that's when I bring in like the IFS framework and these things that I call zhuzhs, which are like my little homework assignments for people that kind of pull in like the person as a person and not just a body, like a, a person with a personality and relationships and, and a life and all of that kind of thing. So what does that actually look like pulling the IFS piece next? Yeah. So when the body's uh, ready and, and a cool thing about uh, the somatic experiencing work when you're tracking sensations and um, just like seeing what the body has to communicate, uh, you know, all kinds of things just arise. Like you'll it sounds like kind of woo woo and magic, but it really is just like spontaneous, just sort of awareness that gets unlocked because you get the brain sort of out of the way, like the thinky brain out of the way. And when you're in that state, it becomes a lot easier to, you just get a little bit more space from what we call parts in IFS. Um, and these are aspects of your personality that get developed through socialization, through life experience, through, you know, anything, just being, being a person. Um, that often like crowd out what we then call the self. And I don't use all of the IFS language mostly because I just don't like rules and <laughs> I like to tailor things to people and it can get a little like gimmicky. I think honestly, like a little cheesy, but the, the way I like to think of it is like, you have a non ED self, like you have a true self that like, doesn't have an eating disorder, like doesn't want an eating disorder, doesn't identify with the eating disorder, but there are parts of you that still act like someone who has an eating disorder or an anxiety disorder, or, you know, 
whatever. And so understanding what those parts are and what job they're trying to do and recognizing that a lot of the biological symptoms and setup that you have like also serve a purpose and having respect for that makes it easier to then have a conversation with those parts. And so when you're in session and you're lying down and you have needles and a weighted blanket and there's a nice lady touching your feet or, you know, whatever, you can start to question these things and say like, okay, crazy calorie counterpart. Like, what are you trying to tell me? Like, what are you trying to protect me from? What are you trying to do? And do I agree with you? And is there a better way that we can go through life or eat a meal or do whatever? And so what I find is that those conversations are just a lot easier when there's a little bit more like breathing room around them because the body has been, but like everything is just kind of quieter and like more sedated because that window of tolerance is a little bit more, I guess window of capacity is like the right word for here. Cause you're just like a little bit more capable of having those conversations and letting like your actual non ED self come through and be like, yeah, you know what? Crazy calorie counting girl. Like she is not it. And like, I'm really not interested in like letting her ruin my day or my life or whatever. So like, cool. Thanks. (laughs) Bye. Mm -hmm. But you're saying first, before we're able to do that, we have to actually ask her what she's doing here. We have to be curious as opposed to judgmental, which to me is like the key always like, yeah, say your number one thing, be curious. Yes. And if you're able to be curious and able to ask questions of that part of yourself and not judge yourself, then we can gather so much information that actually allows us to make different decisions. Yes. Of course, if we're not only staying in sort of the intellectual pursuit of it, but just, yeah, like allowing yourself to be is in essence where this, this stems. Exactly. Exactly. And when you start with the body, it's a little, you just have a little bit more distance from the story and the narrative and the whole like identity piece of it, where, you know, if you're asking yourself like, okay, where do I feel this? anxiety in my body when I step on the scale, like you can get really curious about that. And then usually you start to feel somewhat compassionate towards that because you're like, Oh God, I feel this like weird sensation in my stomach. And like, no wonder I've been like, you know, kind of organizing my life around not feeling this weird sensation around my stomach because like it's uncomfortable and, and I don't want to feel that way. And I, I, I feel badly that my body feels that way. And like, why would I put myself in a situation where like basically purposefully feeling that way. So yeah, the body, like something that this is an idea that comes from the embodied recovery work of Rachel Lewis Marlowe and Paula Scatolini. It's the idea that the body is a resource that you can like actually use it as a tool to help you think differently about yourself and act differently because you have a better understanding of how you feel and also can recognize that like your body is telling you all kinds of amazing things. Like don't step on the scale. It makes you feel bad. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. So even just circling back to the first part of our conversation, we were talking about biology and genetic predisposition. How does this all help with that? If it does? Yeah. So the first thing I would say is like, it can be tremendously relieving for people to understand, like I didn't choose this disorder. Like my body has only one goal, which is to stay alive and to deal with the stress of being alive. And unfortunately my genetics predisposed me to using disordered behaviors to stay okay. And that can happen for 
any number of reasons. It is like a nature nurture kind of situation. Like some people, I'm sure, you know, like some people are like, I had a great childhood. I have no mommy issues. Like, and yet somehow, and like, I don't care about magazines and Photoshop, but like somehow I still had really severe anorexia. Like what the hell, how did that happen? It's like, well, you know, it's just, it's in your nature. It's probably more in your nature than in your nurture. And some people, it's the opposite. Some people, you know, there's a lot of research about sexual abuse and trauma in the early, early years, predisposing people to bulimia and binge purge type disorders, like late, much, much, much later. The hormonal shifts can kind of flip the switch. So puberty is like a, a big crossover. Menopause is a big crossover. Postpartum period can be a big crossover. So I, I find that people are generally relieved when they find that out because it's like, no, it's not all in your head. You have a mental illness, sure, but it has uh, roots that are way beyond just like your mindset and your thinking about it. And I think it also, you know, you can't talk about recovery from any illness without talking about like patient responsibility. Like at a certain point, you need to take ownership of yourself and your health and learn how to take care of yourself. Like that's what a human being learns how to do. We start as a baby Mm -hmm. completely dependent on someone. And then you have to learn how to take care of yourself. Unfortunately, you practice like very self-destructive ways of, of taking care of yourself, but now, you know, better. And when you bring in the, the biological piece, it allows you to know better and feel better at the same time and figure out like, or feel in your body. Like when I make different choices about how to care for myself, this is what happens. And it's my responsibility and worth my effort to do that rather than engage in restrictive behavior or do crazy things like go on crash diets or, or things like that. So I find it helps people focus their efforts in just a more positive way that builds, that has like some built in respect for the body and, and what we all go through just like being alive. Yeah. And also it speaks to the complex nature of people to begin with, that it's Mm -hmm. not just, okay, here are the three things that you do in order to recover from an eating disorder. And here's the one way to think about it. It's saying there are so many different ways to think about it. There's so many different things that we need to do. We obviously need to look at each individual and what works for you, but you know, at a certain point, trying to think your way out of an eating disorder, it's never going to work. work. Yeah, exactly. So bringing it back to the body and the biology and how things, you know, even viscerally feel is going to be potentially a missing piece that can really, you know, bring you to the other side. Yeah. And something that just popped into my mind is like, okay, you give people intuitive eating steps and they're like, yes, that sounds great. I'm signed up for that. Like, I know it's going to be a lot of work, but like philosophically I'm down with this, but then they get to a step that trips them up. Let's say like honoring your hunger and fullness cues, understanding that you might have extra trouble on like honoring your hunger and fullness cues because of something that's biologically happening, like then just gives you a lot more information that can be used for you and not against you. Because what happens when people reach that Mm -hmm. step and are like, I don't know if I'm hungry, what do I do? Well, oops, I just ate a cake. Like they beat themselves up and they say they failed intuitive eating and all this stuff that we hear all the time. And it's like, well, (laughs) okay, (laughs) well, what if we just approach this a different way and like work with, with your body again, like as a resource, instead of just keeping you on that hamster wheel of beating yourself up and, you know, trial and error and all of that kind of thing. Yeah. Overthinking and over intellectualizing your quote unquote problems. 
That is so cool. I love all this. I'm sure that there's a lot more for people to learn and we can link to more resources in the show notes. Yes. Thank you so much for joining us today to give us like a smidge of an understanding of some of the work that you do. Before I let you go, can you share with our listeners where they can find you? Yes. Instagram is probably the best place. Um, My handle is at bedside.manner. I'm pretty active on there. Also my website, bedsidemanneruniverse.com is a kind of a hub of a lot of resources and information and research. Yeah. That is the universe where all of my, my work sort of lives in. So if you're, if you want to know more and listen to some of the conversations that I have with other healthcare providers, there's information there about my podcast and yeah, there's just all kinds of all kinds. Oh, I love how you casually, Oh, if you want to listen to <laughs> like some other conversations on my podcast, there's a podcast called Bedside Manor. There's also a podcast. It's, it's a whole thing. <laughs> I've always had this vision of offering people a place that just feels so different than every medical situation that they've been in. So like the universe thing is just like, I want to just be like a cozy place where you can be like, oh, I'm kind of drifting in and out and taking I what I need that. and, you know, just hanging yeah. out. And yeah. I'll link to all of that in the show notes. There are so many more resources on your website. So I hope that people go check it out. Yeah, totally. And and please reach out if, if anything feels interesting or people have questions about stuff, reach out to me. You made it to the end. Thank you for listening. Every single one of your downloads means so much to me. If this conversation is leaving you wanting more, be sure to sign up for my newsletter. You'll have the opportunity to reply back directly to me over there. Can't wait to see you in your inbox.